Yo, welcome in to another episode. It's the Game Within the Game podcast, capturing the game. You already know, another episode in the books today. Uh, today, I'm your host, co-host Desmond Jones with my Brady. And today, we also have an extra host. It's my brother, my older brother. Came in town to help me graduate, celebrate graduation this weekend. His name is Mark Jones in the building. Welcome in, Scott. Thank you for taking your time out this evening to be a part of this podcast. Thank y'all for having me. Of course, of course. Uh, can you go ahead and tell the audience a little bit about yourself so they can get familiar with you? Yeah, so I'm a Chicago area kid. I went to high school in Aurora, Illinois, which uh, people usually know from the movie Wayne's World or from the Saturday Night Live skit Wayne's World. Went down to Illinois State University in the center of uh, the state and played football there. Did my undergrad in exercise science and I was also fortunate to get to play for a national championship my senior year, which ended with uh, Carson Wentz taking North Dakota State down the field with the last minute and a half left in the game to win. So I suppose if you're going to lose a natty, that's the the way to lose it there um, to a number two overall draft pick. But finished that up. I tried to play football professionally. That didn't pan out, unfortunately, but uh, gave me great experience for what I'm doing now as a coach. And that led me into getting my first coaching gig as a head strength coach at a high school in uh, rural Illinois, like five minutes up the road from uh my parents house and so i did that for a few months really really enjoyed it that was kind of the the trial by fire of all of a sudden you know i went from i'd done like private training and small group stuff for years throughout undergrad and then all of a sudden it was i had 100 football players in a room and i'm trying to get all of them to do olympic lifts at the same time and it's kind of like trying to get 100 cats to to do olympic lifting at the same time it's just chaos so it was a great trial by fire. And I mean, I was still riding kind of the, the reputation of having played football at Illinois State, having gone to a national championship. And, you know, I could have told those kids that if they ran into a brick wall, it'd be good for their development as an athlete. And they would have done it head first without any hesitation. So to like have that experience and just the, the purity of it working in high school football, like it was such a fun experience for me to kind of get my feet wet and, and cut my teeth as a practitioner. And that led me to a... Um, a conference out in Richmond, Virginia, where I was really keen to hear uh, somebody by the name of Eric Coram speak. And he was somebody that I'd come by during my career as a football player, where I, I was looking for, you know, kind of different ways to, to go at strength and conditioning, because I had really kind of found my interest for it in college when I realized, you know, I'd always been involved in like sport performance, like the private sector type stuff. But in college, I realized, you know, you can do the same thing, but it's the intangibles of you've got a team working towards a common goal. And that just really, really spoke to me. But then I also wanted to see like what other programs were doing as far as uh, approaching strength and conditioning. And I saw some videos of Eric talking about what they were doing at the University of Kentucky with their football team. And it was one of those like light bulb moments where you just, wow, that makes a lot of sense in how he's looking at the problems of improving athletes for their sport and so you flash forward three years and I see that he's speaking at this conference and I beg borrow and plead with my parents to help me fund a trip out there to go see him speak and so I listen to him speak the first night and he's getting ready to walk out to another conference he's doing the next day and I follow him out of the the building and I tap him on the shoulder and I'll say it he'll say it um but it looked like I was stalking him and I I told him straight up I was like (laughs) you know, 
you don't know me from anybody, but I really, I think very highly of, of what you're doing at Kentucky and I believe in it and I'd love to come be a part of it if that's possible. And so he said, you know, here's my card, send me your details. So I sent, went home and sent him my uh, resume and application stuff. Next day he gets back to me and he says, would, would you like to come intern for us in two weeks? And I packed my bags up and I moved to Lexington, Kentucky for a semester in the fall of 2015. And uh, that was like, I thought I was doing pretty well in high school with like the program I was putting together. And then I get to SEC football and I just realized how much deeper the rabbit hole goes. And I'm just like, wow. It was like just a swift plummet into feeling like I knew nothing about how to do the job well. And great experience, obviously. I had the, the cool experience of getting to actually practice with the team because they were short on uh, scout team wide receivers. So I got to run one more football practice with them. Uh, I saw Lamar Jackson's first ever college football game, which would have been fun to see if he wow. hadn't torched us for 42 straight points and <laughs> taken us out of bowl eligibility. We were up 21 nothing. They put in this scrawny freshman named Lamar Jackson, and he just all over the field. Same stuff he does now in the NFL. He did it to us as an 18-year-old. Um, so that was pretty cool to see. But so my time there wrapped up. I went home, worked in the private sector at the gym that I grew up training at, was applying for graduate assistantships to continue myself as a strength coach in the collegiate sector. Landed my, my 18th application uh, at the University of Tulsa. And uh, so I took myself down there to do my master's and you know cut my teeth a little bit deeper in strength and conditioning. Tremendous experience. The, the city of Tulsa is really, really special to me. I think it's one of the coolest places in the country and learned a lot, grew a lot. And the experiences that I had there ended up sort of grooming me for what became my first full-time opportunity, which was a full circle opportunity to work for Eric again at a school called the College of William & Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia. He had hit me up as I was finishing up, uh, I think as I like just graduated from University of Tulsa and said he was gonna have an opening at William and & Mary. And the things that he was doing at Kentucky that I thought were different for the right reasons, we were, he was going to do at William and Mary, but he was going to be a senior level athletic director. Mm. So one of the limitations I saw at Kentucky was that because he did not have a seat at the big, big table per se, when it comes to uh, athletic department, he couldn't as readily make these things happen. And so what I saw in the opportunity at William and Mary was that he's going to sit at the big table. He's going to be able to advocate for us, drive policy, in the right direction that will enable us to do our jobs in the way that I believe is necessary for collegiate athletics to operate successfully. And so I, I jumped on the opportunity to, to go and work for him full time. And again, to have that endorsement that he has an opportunity and he wants to bring me back from, you know, having just been his intern at Kentucky was, was really, really humbling for me. And while I was there, I got the, the chance to work with um, somebody that's become one of my, my most formative mentors and one of my closest friends named Kier Wendham Flat, who objectively one of the best in the world at what he does as a strength and conditioning coach and happened to, to grow into my best friend as well, even as my boss. And between him and Eric, um, I got to learn a ton and grow a ton and even just have this deeper plummet into realizing how much I don't know about the field of performance. And it was the most uncomfortable experience every single day I was there in the, in the best way possible because their, their standards were super, super high. Their knowledge base and their ability to think critically and to challenge what I was doing and to ask the hard questions 
um, that there was no hesitation on their part from doing that. So it really, really challenged me to put the why to what I was doing and to be able to think very critically about why I was doing it and to be able to articulate the reasoning for what I was doing at any given point. And it really, that was the most, um, I guess that was the most growth I'd undergone as far as like gaining practical knowledge as a practitioner. And then also honing my ability to think in systems and, and think very globally as it pertains to the complex system that sport is. Uh, so we fast forward two more years, uh, pandemics hit, we're all at home, uh, trying to figure out how to, how we're going to do our jobs when these kids have not been able to go to gyms, not been able to go to parks, not been able to play sports together for months. Yep. And interestingly enough, the, the vessel that led to me coming to Arizona was an Instagram post because I, I posted some work that I did during quarantine with, uh, some of the stuff that I do in analytics. And the head guy from the University of Arizona football program DM me and said he was looking for somebody that could do stuff like this. And it was weird at first because like I had this really strong, I have this really strong loyalty to Eric and Kier. Um, and so it felt like I was in a relationship with a girl and all of a sudden this other girl's like slid into my DMs and is hitting on me. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I didn't really know how to feel about it because I was like, you know, this girl's kind of attractive. Um, but it was made all the better by the fact that like when I talked to Kira about it, he was like kicking me out the door. He's like, you absolutely need to go. Him and Eric were getting ready to get out of collegiate sport. They were ready to move to a different chapter of their life. He's like, we're not going to be there. It's power five. It's football only. Um, you're going there to work on, you know, specifically one domain of college football, which was uh, GPS systems, which is what I've kind of carved out a niche in. Um, He's like, you absolutely need to take the job. And it's in Tucson, Arizona, which is far better place to live than Williamsburg, Virginia. And so that and a meeting that we had with our um, athletic director at William & Mary that effectively the, the project we were trying to do at William & Mary was getting axed. And so we were no longer going to be doing it in the way that I had gone there to do my job. That all led me to taking the job at Arizona. And so I went in last fall and the, the timing of it all was was very could not have been more poetic. Um, my athletes had just gotten back on campus at William & Mary, so I was able to say goodbye to them in person, which obviously after months of just Zoom meetings with them, and you know, you, they were the only people I saw day in and day out for two years. Like I was working long enough hours to where I didn't have a social life and there's not that much to do in Williamsburg, Virginia. Anyways, it's, a, it's an old white conservative retirement community basically, so <laughs> there's not that much for there's not that much for somebody that's 26 and, and single yeah. um but so like these are the only people that i interacted with on a daily basis and so to be able to say goodbye to them in person um meant a lot to me and it was like it had timed up to where i was leaving the following tuesday and they were just getting back into town that weekend so i got to say goodbye to them in person and when i got out to arizona the pac-12 had still said they were not going to play football this fall so rather than getting thrown into the deep end of a preseason and trying to systemize everything I was going to do with GPS and then just obviously get familiar with the athletes. Um, I had like a three week buffer time where we were operating as if we were just going to have a long off season for the fall. So I got to work really slowly through getting deeper into the GPS system, getting to know the boys better, uh, figuring out how I wanted to go about doing my job and my specific role with the GPS system, 
Um, and then obviously just getting familiar with the area as a whole. And about three weeks in was when the Pac-12 uh, walked back their decision because the SEC and the Big Ten and the ACC came out and said they were playing. Um, Pac-12 walked mm-hmm. it back and said we were going to have a season. So then it was kind of this like rapid gear up to go from effectively nothing to being ready to play USC when they were ranked 20th, uh, November 7th, mm-hmm. or November 14th, excuse me. Um, and so we, that was kind of my main role with Arizona football was using the GPS system and, and some pragmatic knowledge and research around football to design our preseason ramp up and put together like the, the roadmap for how we were going to go from a period where they've done absolutely nothing and they've not had the summer workouts they've normally had. They've not been practicing like they normally have to playing Pac-12 football in six weeks effectively is what we had. So that was, a, that to me, that's what kind of my, my calling is, is to be able to put together the, the biggest pieces on the, on the chessboard and make them go. And so being able to design sport practice, do it in a way that is digestible by sport coaches, by athletic trainers, by other performance coaches, and is, is very simple to deploy um, is what I really, really came to become effective at out of that experience. And so unfortunately the season did not go the way we wanted it to by any means. There were a lot of variables at play in terms of the, the culture of the program. And I think just apathy of a lot of the stakeholders involved. And so unfortunately I was not retained when the new staff was brought in this past January. And so I instead, um, I kind of decided to take like a a step back and not necessarily rush to jump into another football job. Uh, So I stayed on the Olympic side here at the University of Arizona. So I'm still working in collegiate sport, but I work with divers, men's and women's tennis and men's golf here. Um, So the, the workload has gone down substantially for me, but it's allowed me to invest my time into some other projects and into other passions of mine. And so like one of the cool projects I, I've taken on is I'm working with Eric actually is the one who brought me into it because he's working on his, um, he's got a, uh, a business that he's running aimed at modifying lifestyle habits and using monitoring tools to do so. And he got brought into a, a challenge that a group of Navy SEALs are doing called the Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge. And what it is, is it's a, um, it's a rowing race across the Atlantic Ocean. So it's 3000 nautical miles and these group of Navy SEALs are aiming to beat the world record in it. And so they have to go 3000 nautical miles in 29 days and 16 hours with a four man team. And yeah. So, and like I was, I was sitting on a zoom with these guys a couple of weeks ago. (laughs) <laughs> and it, it looked like it looked like four Jason Statham sitting there that if I said the wrong thing, they could have killed me 26 different ways from where they were sitting. Oh, and, sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so like I get to do that. And the, the cool part about that is like they have a sponsor from like Rogue Fitness who does like the CrossFit games, the Naval Academy sponsoring them, T-Mobile. Um, Rogue's paying for a, a film crew to film a documentary about them for the next two years while they prepare for this challenge. And then the really unfortunate part is that I get to go out to Spain and Antigua every six to eight weeks to be there for their training camps. So it's like <laughs> not not too bad at all. So I like to have to have time for projects like that and to have a boss that's supportive of me doing something like that and recognizes that there, there's mutual um, benefit to me doing that, to what that brings back to the university to be able to promote that I'm doing something like that. So 
that's where I'm at currently and loving it. And it's 90 degrees here today and it's sunny and you can't beat the Arizona weather like we were talking about offline. So oh, yeah. that's where I am now. Apologies for the long-winded intro, but that kind of encapsulates it all. No. no. Thank you for sharing that. That's a, you, I feel like it's, we walked that whole history with you. Like it was very, <laughs> very well done and, and, and congrats on the, the new spot. Thank you. Yeah. I've given that spiel a couple of times and gotten good at telling it and it just continues to expand as life unfolds. So happy to be where I'm at and to be where my feet are. Uh, pretty good. So I know you're mentioning as in that spiel, you were saying GPS systems. I know we we're sitting here thinking about what that is. So what is exactly like the GPS systems as you're explaining with the workouts and stuff? Yeah. So in the same way that a GPS system works in the car, it tells you, uh, where you're going, best route for getting there, um, and potential routes you may need to take as far as if you need to take a detour because a path is contraindicated based on traffic or an accident or what have you. And so uh, GPS in sport is, is really about being able to quantify what the players are tasked with doing on the field of play. So with the system that I typically utilize, it has the capacity to export up to 1115 different metrics on their specific sport. And so I can see how far are they running? How fast are they doing it? What's the, what's the fastest that they run? How many times do they register a running effort within a certain speed zone? Um, hmm. What does the, what does the workload look like for, players like offensive and defensive linemen that don't, they don't cover as much ground, but there's collisions that are happening in a very, very small space. And they have accelerometry built into the GPS units that can effectively calculate those collisions. Um, so it, it's really about being able to take, you know, to figure out what is the sport, what, what are the demands of the sport? And then to be able to take that information to figure out how can we ensure that athletes are prepared to meet those demands before they've gotten to the competition um, arena? And so that's really what, and that's really what I've tried to kind of make my life's work about is being able to reverse engineer that process and not only ensure that the athletes are, are sufficiently prepared to meet those demands in a game, but that the way that we are practicing is representative of those game demands and isn't just a bunch of junk volume that's done too fast and isn't done intensely enough is typically what you see the issue to be um in a sport like football and so by being able to demonstrate you know here's what the game looks like on this particular metric here's what our practice looked like relative to that you can paint a pretty clear picture of how what you're doing is approximating the demands of the game or not. And so it's pretty, pretty easy to say to, I think most people and, you know, even more uh, layman's people such as yourselves, like, do you agree the best way to prepare for doing something is to do the thing? And it's yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so if the game of football requires you to, let's say, uh, if the game of football requires you to run a total of 6,000 yards as a wide receiver with thousand of those yards coming above 75% of their max velocity, we should probably design scenarios that expose them to 6,000 yards of running with a thousand yards of it coming at 75% of the greater of their max velocity. 
can't just jump into playing a game day one. So then it's how do you use best research, best practice um, to reverse engineer from what that game looks like to a starting point that you're effectively calling ground zero at the beginning of training camp. Because we could all also agree that if you're going to train to run a marathon, what you shouldn't do is go out and run a marathon on day one. That would be the wrong way to go about it. Injured. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> incidentally, incidentally, that is what you see most football coaches and football programs do is that, and I don't know if any of you guys have uh, playing experience, but your first couple of days, everybody is so excited to play and get out there and prove themselves. And the coaches are, you know, making up for lost time, quote unquote, uh, want to see who worked hard. And so you end up with these really, really long practices that are really, really intense because everybody is fresh. And then what happens within the first couple of days and then, you know, approximately seven to 10 days later, the injuries pile up. And so what you end up seeing is the coaches, the coaches respond to that. And so they start backing down practice. And so you see this detraining into games that they're doing less volume. It's less intense. It's shorter practices when in fact you need to be gearing them up for the opposite because a football game, when you throw into uh, throw into it, the TV, the stoppages, what have you, the pace of the game, football games are a four and a half, five hour ordeal. And so if your first two days were three hours long, and then you just went down from there because of injuries, um, you're exposing them to less time on feet. You're exposing them to less volume of work, less intensity, less, um, less things that look like what they're going to be asked to do in a game. And so you actually end up detraining going into a game. And so it's about being able to paint that picture for the coaches to say, hey, if you're okay with this amount of practice happening in weeks three and four before you play your first game, why can't we just take that whole picture and flip it so that you start shorter here and you gradually build to more and more as you go and you get to better approximating the volumes, the intensities, the explosiveness, the densities of work that they're going to do in a game. And so interestingly enough, that's what we were able to do at Arizona this past fall um, was it, it was the exact same thing we saw in 2019 that I just outlined to where the first two days were game-like. And then you see this linear trend where it's just downward over the course of the entire fall camp. And then you come out and you see this game and it's way up here. So we were able to get them to invert it, start with super short practices and just gradually build the volumes and the durations of practices as they went so that rather than be training into the season, we were building and that is what I used the GPS system for at Arizona was to show this is what happened and we, what we've done previously. Couple that with the, the constraints of the pandemic. And this is why it would not be an advisable approach to go at this like it's any other fall camp because it's not. And we saw a very, very positive trends so much so that I was able to actually present a case study on it on a strength coach website as to the improvements that we got. And the interesting thing that came out of it was that our, so there, there's like two key metrics that I kind of look at. One is um, sprint distance, which can be proxied as like a measure of intensity. So if you're able to express mm -hmm. more volumes of high velocity efforts, that's indicative that you have the capacity of the system to express those outputs and then repeat those outputs over the course of time. Another one is explosive distance. So obviously the game of football is predominantly acceleration based. So can you accelerate at a fast enough rate to register what's considered to be an explosive distance effort? And so what we saw over the course of the camp was actually that they built their, um, their tolerance 
for more and more sprint distance, more and more explosive distance. And the game isn't won playing at medium intensities. It's won by the, the Tyreek Hills that can game break a, a play at a given moment yeah. and can hit that hole when it's open. So if you condition these athletes for to be able to tolerate higher volumes of um, sprint distance and higher volumes of explosive distance, they're going to be more equipped to perform when it matters most in the game and to be able to do it over and over so that even in the fourth quarter, they're still able to bust open that run. Mm -hmm. um, and so we saw significant improvements in their capacity for sprint distance and explosive distance compared to the previous year. And again, all of that was coming from practice itself. So we're not just talking about lining them up and running them track style and you lose the, the context of sport practice itself. We're talking about them sprinting and playing explosively in practice and so if you can get those volumes of work in practice you're conditioning them to play fast and play explosively in the sport which is undoubtedly going to have carryover into the games mm -hmm. it's just a matter of if you can couple that with the technical tactical components of your play calling and the techniques you've taught them for problem solving on the field which is where we struggled yeah, that's all interesting. I'm curious on how you kind of got into doing this kind of system and why you decided to look into further dig yourself into um, these type of metrics. Like what led you um, to do that? I think a lot of it was the influence that Eric had on me from a very, I, I say early age, and that was me as a sophomore in college, but early as a, early age as a coach. And a lot of you know he, he's I've heard that reverse engineering sport mantra since 2012 when I was listening to him speak and to me that what the value of the GPS system is is that it, it puts a number to what the players are doing like you can phenomenologically look at what's happening on the field and say oh yeah they're working hard we just need to run 300s because it's hard that's all fine and dandy, but at the end of the day, the game of football is not a 60 second medium intensity effort. The game of football is explosive efforts and it's the ability to repeat those explosive efforts. So that kind of, you know, led me in the direction of, okay, well, what do those explosive efforts look like? How many of them are they doing? What are the, the volumes of work that they need to be able to do? And what do we as strength coaches need to be preparing them to handle before they get to fall camp? Because obviously we can, we can, funnel as much of it as possible through practice, but I'm not always going to be in a situation, excuse me, a situation where I can readily have as much influence on the design of practice as I have at my previous two stops. So how can I, as the strength coach, effectively make the sport coaches right with the training that I do with the kids leading into preseason camp? So knowing what that preseason camp could look like and knowing what those on-feet demands look like I can make sure that the entire summer is designed around building them up to be able to have a first week of fall camp before they even get to actual fall camp. And that is what's going to mitigate the risk of injury for the athletes because they are equipped with the capacity of their body to handle those kinds of workloads. Um, and it's also going to make it so that less of the demand is on getting in shape, again, quote unquote, and they can focus more on just becoming better football players because it's not just about being in shape. It's about being really, really good at your sport. But if you aren't in shape, 
you're just going to be trying to keep up the whole time and you're not going to have the the let's call it adaptive currency to improve your techniques improve your understanding of the tactics and so that's where i think a lot of it kind of just led me down this hole of like you know the, the biggest thing to understand about what's going on with the athletes is what is the cost of doing business what is the cost of playing football of playing lacrosse of playing soccer how can I ensure that when the time comes, they're ready to pay that cost on debit and not on credit? That's kind of an interesting uh, thing you put there with the credit and debit thing. I kind of like how that analogy kind of rolls into uh, everything you said so far with how um, you have the other coaches train the athletes and how you're trying to change the system instead of going right into game type stuff and then building your way up to it. So I kind of like that analogy. It probably will help the listeners and viewers um, kind of understand the system that you're running and that you've um, tried to help with other schools. Yeah. So I really, when I got into kind of figuring out, this was all like brand, like I've definitely given thought to it, but I was not put in a situation where I could readily put a system to it. And, and I was, I was the benefactor of coming into a situation at Arizona where they had already kind of had the, the trimmings of a system in place. But when I looked at it, it, it was too complex for me as a performance coach. And I, I thought there, were, there was too much going on and it was too hard to follow because, so it was color system based. So everybody understands green, yellow, red, easy enough. Um, where I thought a lot of the issue came was that the color system was deployed throughout the practice. So you had certain periods that were certain colors. And as much as I would like to think that my GPS report and my practice plan are the most important thing in the world to a football coach, the football coach has recruiting, academics, strength staff, nutrition staff, psychological staff, athletic trainers. I may have already said recruiting, logistical issues to deal with, personnel issues to deal with, meetings to be had, the point being that there is a ton on their plate and your report, your plan is going to be a blip on their radar. So if I'm going to deploy a system with them, it needs to be as high level as possible and as pragmatic as possible for them to understand and digest. And so what I ended up doing was taking this color system and retooling it to where rather than certain periods having certain colors, it was the entire day was a certain color. So we were really targeting certain qualities on certain days based upon good, what's called tactical planning uh, principles. So tactical planning is just how you plan sport practice effectively. And uh, so like how we did it was green means go. So green was our more speed oriented day. So inherent to the ability to express a high intensity output is that you need to rest. If I asked you to run 10 40s in a row and I only give you five seconds in between them, your first couple are gonna be pretty fast, but then after that, you're gonna quickly die off. So you can't express intensity if you're not giving adequate rest and you're not providing lower volumes of work for them to do it with. So now if I give you 10 40s and I give you five minutes rest in between them, a higher percentage of those 40s are gonna be closer to your maximum capability. So you've now conditioned your body for high intensity outputs. And so that's what we looked to do on the green day was we said, the goal is maximal playing speed. In order to do that, we have to slow down the rate of play between plays. So we did a lot of that 
um, we oriented them to that's your day that you work on your huddle offense, slow them down, get them in the huddle, then break them out. You might do things like use single file lines. So you don't have a bunch of guys up at the same time and you run more of your deep routes on that day. So they run faster. They get up to higher velocities. Um, but we really tried to structure it in a simple way that was readily digestible so that the coaches knew going into Tuesday, that was our green day. So that was the day to get after it, coach them between reps. Cause that helps slow the pace down as well. Give them more break time. And the overall duration of the practice was going to be shorter. Cause obviously as you go on in any physical endeavor, fatigue becomes a rate limiter for the continued expression of intensity. So we needed that practice to be a little bit shorter so that the intensity could be preserved throughout the entire practice. Inverse to that is that we needed to also be able to prepare the players with what we call a specific work capacity, which is, are they fit to handle the demands of the game above game demands? So that was a day where it was all about no huddle. It was play as fast as you can for a certain amount of reps and let's accumulate a lot of volume of work to prepare them for the volumes they're going to see on game day. So that day, um, as an example, so like on our green day in routes on air, if everybody's familiar, that's where receivers and quarterbacks just uh, pitch and catch to each other. Um, on the green day, it would be one receiver up on each side. They would run their route, catch the ball, and they could walk back down. On the yellow day, we would have multiple receivers up at the same time, four quarterbacks up, and they would run four to six reps in a row at a no huddle pace. So they were snapping the ball every 15 seconds. So now we're conditioning them, even in segments of practice that aren't full team or seven on seven, we're conditioning them above the demands of the game. So they have the, the work capacity or the fitness per se to tolerate the game at a faster pace than it's actually going to transpire at when they're in competition. So we spent one day developing their ability to play as fast as they can. And we spent another day conditioning their ability to play as fast as they can for as long as they can. And then inherent to that was our third day, which was our red days. And those were recovery days. So you can't just play at high intensity all the time. You can't just keep going and going and going. You have to pay the cost back of doing business. So we use red days on the front end and then on the back end of those two days there, one is a means of kind of recovering and like dress rehearsal for the green and the yellow day. So that was like jog through your place for that, for the Tuesday and the Wednesday, um, get them moving, but we don't want to, fatigue them a whole lot because they just played a game two days ago. And then on Thursday, it was, let's slow things down a lot. Let's allow them to recover from what they just did the past two days. And then that would take us into our Friday, which we called our fast Friday, um, which was just short practice, play fast, kind of rev the engine for the day. And then Saturday we'd play. And so again, it was, it was very, very high level. It used a color system they were already familiar with and that everybody's very conditioned to understanding. And then we took simple pieces from research and just from pragmatic thinking about how to design practice so that it wasn't that much of a deviation from what they're used to doing as sport coaches and they could just focus on coaching the game and we could put the constraints in place that would allow us to get the adaptations that we wanted out of our respective days so there's a great presentation that i can um i can provide a link to the website that people can sign up for if they want um that outlines all this completely in depth about how i went about it um, and how I use the system and then how I use GPS as well. Yeah, that'd be actually great. We could actually link that when we um, post this and everything so that people can get a, a more in-depth of what you've been talking about. Because I know you're probably just hitting the surface on um, everything that you've done and you've known. So 
I think that might be helpful for people who want to uh, know more because I know this will probably be a couple hours we can be talking about this type of stuff. So yes, it could be. be <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, for sure. One of the questions that I have for you, and, and I'm kind of want to look back more at your beginning because you went from being in the 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 Aurora area, then you went to Illinois State and everything. What is one of the things that you, if you could either a talk to yourself at a, at a younger age that you could prepare them for going to that next level or when you have an incoming freshman incoming people that are trying to train and get ready what are some of the things that you will wish that if you could like grab them say hey stop doing this what would some of those things be stop worrying so much about the lifting and about looking the part um mm. i i think and this was my mistake as well. And this is what was so formative for me. Um, you know, I'm not going to lie. I, I, I balled in high school. I was good. <laughs> yeah. um, but, I, but I had it in my head that like, I needed to come in. And I needed to look like a fifth-year senior walking through the doors. Mm. When it was like the thing that made me as good as I was in high school was that I was fast, I was shifty, and I could just – I could problem solve in the sport of football and I was just a good football player. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think, you know, there's great examples to look at in the NFL right now. And, you know, even in college football this past year, Devonte Smith won the Heisman at 160, 170 pounds. Yeah. So, so what does, what does weight or what does, you know, bulk have to do with your ability to be a good football player if they can't touch you to begin with right. Hollywood Brown got drafted first round out of Oklahoma at 166 pounds like you're gonna tell me size matters like it, it doesn't um you know and then the, the thing I, I put to other people as well is like you have everybody from from tom brady at 44 years old and having the the infamous uh pro day highlight tape that everybody you know circulates you've got everybody from him to the physical specimen that lamar jackson is playing the exact same position and so it's like, once you've met that, that minimum physical barrier to entry, you know, obviously the, the tools and the, the skill sets that Lamar has and his physical gifts enable him to do things that Tom Brady will never be able to do. But at the end of the day, they're both playing the same position very, very successfully. And so it is so much more about their ability to um, technically get done what they need to get done and tactically to understand the game and how to solve the problems that are in front of them in the seconds that are afforded to them of a play. So uh, I think that the biggest piece uh, that I would impress to, and I do impress to, to any kid that I talk to is look, you, you don't need to be benching the house. You don't need to be squatting the house. Like those are things that are actually probably gonna be to your detriment in all likelihood. Like just be really, really good at your sport. And if you're gonna go after something physical, make it your speed and your, your change of direction qualities, your ability to evade human beings your ability to um you know navigate traffic what have you like all the tippy tappy eyes down looking at a ladder uh, running around a cone jumping through hoop all that bullshit like that's not football <laughs> it, it, it's not the the stuff that's going to make you good at football is like going out and playing sharks and minnows going out and like 1v1 trying to score against somebody because you know what if you get it right you're going to store that away in a database of, of solutions that you have available for something that works successfully. And if you get your face lit up by it, you're going to learn maybe next time you shouldn't break down your feet for so long and you're going to try and get out of that quicker. So that that's the, 
failure is the best teacher when it comes to learning how to movement problem solve in sport. And the only way you're going to learn how to solve problems is to put yourself in positions where problems are presented to you. And a stationary cone that is not going to move and your eyes are down on is not a problem to solve. It's just an obstacle. So get really, really good at your sport. Be fast, be able to avoid other humans. Julie noted, I have a 16 year old and I'm taking all these notes right now, right now. To... Send them my way, send them my way. <laughs> what, uh, what position did you play in high school and college? I was a wide receiver. Uh... I proudly put out the fastest 40 at my pro day, my senior year. The range was like a four, four, seven to a four, five, four, I was told. So I, I used to be able to scoot, but now it's like, my hamstring feels like the carnitas at Chipotle and it's probably not a good idea. <laughs> what, uh, cause I, I know you mentioned earlier in the beginning of your story that you was, um, you was trying to make it to the NFL. What stopped you, what hindered you from making it to the next level? I just didn't have enough film. I wasn't good enough at football. I mean, uh, th that's what it boils down to. You know, I, I could say one way or the other, like I do know my, the year that I was, would have been picked up a lot of receivers fell in the draft. And so, you know, maybe a shot that I would have gotten at like Canadian league, um, mm. because everybody bumped down, maybe that was, you know, out of the picture for me. But at the end of the day, like if you ball, you ball, you get picked up, you get noticed. So, I, just, I didn't have enough film. I, I was a walk-on turn scholarship guy, um, but I kind of played in more of like a utility role where I could go in and play any position on the field and I would be pretty good. I wasn't going to be like a game stop or anything like that, but I could go in and, and play spot duty. Um, okay. And so, you know, caught a few touchdowns, had some fun, uh, made a few big plays, but ultimately boy, I wasn't good enough. And I still, I knew it was a long shot when I did it, but I also knew that as with my desires to be a coach, I knew that I would be in a position where I would potentially be coaching people through that process. And I actually got to my second year at Tulsa. And so to be able to have the experience of what that's like as an athlete and to be able to talk from that experience to me was most of the value beyond the, the personal aspect of, you know, if this chapter of my life is going to be closed on me, I want to see it closed on my terms and know that I gave it everything I could. And but again, the, the dual benefit of being able to go through that process and know what it's like and how it's going to go to be able to impart that wisdom to the athletes that I worked with was incredibly invaluable. And it was a fun process. Like I, I got to, I got to push my body to its absolute limits. And I did physically, I did things that I'd never done before in my life. Like as fast as I ran, I, I jumped the highest and the furthest I'd ever jumped. Um, you know, I just, I felt good physically for the first time in my life. So it was just, it was a very, very cool experience in that regard. And then to be able to pay it forward three years later to the pro day guys I trained at Tulsa was a really, really cool experience for me and really rewarding for me. Yeah. Like that. So speaking on, uh, like knowing your limits, how, how are you able to translate like what you learned, um, playing the sport into now coaching, how are you able to translate, um, the learning stuff to teaching other people how to do it? I think a lot of it goes back to like what fundamentally matters most, which is kind of what I got at um, with the question that was asked earlier about what I would say to my younger self, like it, until there's a squat rack on the, the football field, it, it's a means to an end. It's not the end itself. And I think there, there's a lot of conflation of that as it pertains to the field that I work in that 
everybody lives and dies by their, their back squat one RM. And it's like, again, Hollywood Brown, uh, Devontae Smith, neither of those guys are, are physically imposing. They don't squat the house and they are some of the most successful athletes at their position. Christian McCaffrey benched 225, I think 10 times at the combine. Are you going to tell me that like it matters that much that it has to be the only thing that you do? And so like when athletes come in and they're like asking for extra workouts and stuff, it's like, well, hold on. Like let's not just arbitrarily throw a barbell up and, and start lifting. Like, is this something we need to work on or is there a rate limiter somewhere in your game that would be more prudent for you to spend time addressing? And so I think just helping kids to get that more global perspective, like you're not going to solve, there, there's very few problems in my opinion in sport that you're going to solve in the weight room. A, a lot more of them would be solved and better served by getting out on the field, getting more exposed, excuse me, more exposures to more repetitions of the things that you're going to be tasked with doing in the sport. So as a wide receiver, it's, if you struggle off of press releases, you don't need to go in and do like hand stuff on a little uh, blocking disc or what have you. You probably need to get out there and just do press releases. Or if you, you struggle getting in and, out, in and out of your routes, you know what you probably need to do? Probably need to go out on the field and just get in and out of your routes and take some time and actually work qualitatively at those things. So I think just bringing that more global mindset to the athletes to not just think that they're going to solve any struggles with playing time or lack thereof by coming into the gym more um, because it can actually, again, be detrimental if all they're doing is adding all this extra mass to their bodies and it's not mass that they are training their bodies to preserve their speed and, and power qualities with. Um, they're going to slow themselves down, make themselves stiffer, bulkier, um, and generally just less athletic because they think they're solving some sort of problem by going in and lifting extra. It's like, no, let's, the gym is a tool. It's not the entire toolbox. Let's figure out where else we can solve our problems before we just start lifting the lift. Yeah. I always um, try to figure out what the healthy balance is growing up to um, weight and speed. Cause you didn't want to add too much because then you just become massively slow and moving like a robot versus, you know, trying to remain agile. So how do you find that healthy balance between like speed and weight at the same time? I think a lot of it is, and I've liked, I've had this put to me by my former boss Kier before, but I think a lot of what the issue in, in sport is, is that people have, a substitution bias when it comes to the, how you develop for sport. And rather than trying to answer the really complex question of how do you improve an athlete's performance at a sport, they've substituted it with a, a simpler question of how do I make them faster? How do I make them stronger? How do I make them bulkier? Um, and, and so I really think rather than trying to necessarily fixate on how do you balance weight versus speed, I think it's more like the North star for everybody should always be what's going to make the boat go faster as it pertains to making them better football players. So there's obviously a level of development physically that you would like for athletes to have to be robust to the physical demands of sport. But how do we definitively know 
if I get an athlete that's 165 pounds, if I get him to 180 pounds, do we know that that's going to be what makes him a successful football player? Or is he going to be better served by, you know, gradually gaining that weight? So maybe he only gains five pounds his freshman year, but he becomes a much better football player because you're not creating this massive signal in his body for uh, hypertrophical adaptations to get bigger, but you're allowing him to just very steadily gain weight. You're allowing his body to accommodate to that gained weight. So he preserves his speed, if not builds it. And then he also has money in the bank account left to pay for adaptations that are occurring in practice. So understanding the game at a higher level, learning and the cognition that comes with the tactics of the game and the techniques of the game. So rather than me trying to, to blow his entire bank account on just making it as big as possible, why not just do it a little more incrementally and make sure that the thing that, that stays in the, uh, the driver's seat of his performance as a football player is him getting better at football versus arbitrarily worrying about a number um, that may not matter. Because again, if it were solely about the biggest football player or solely about being the fastest football player, then the people from my 600 pound life should be football stars and Usain Bolt should dominate <laughs> the game of football, <laughs> which as we know is not true. So it's, you know, when you can look at the extremes of any circumstance like that, and then again, you can look at the, the um the spectrum of athletes that have played the game you have everybody from jerry rice at a four seven to calvin johnson at a four three to wes welker at five nine four eight five forty that played the exact same position successfully so it's like you, you're not going to get to the nfl as a wide receiver if you run a five second 40 on the chance you do you better be really really good technically and tactically um mm -hmm. but once you kind of once you're fast enough once you're big enough it's much more about your technical tactical capabilities as an athlete. And so keeping kind of that, that lens on it in mind, rather than necessarily trying to get caught up in the, the nuance of how do I make sure the weight that he gains keeps him fast or vice versa. Um, and so just being much more pulled back and seeing the bigger picture for what it is. Does he need to gain weight? I don't know. <laughs> If he has issues getting hurt, then maybe he does. But if he's too fast at 165 pounds to be caught to where he could get hurt, I'm probably not too worried. Mm. I understand that. Um, so I, I, I'm curious. Since if you play against Carson Wentz and, and Lamar Jackson, I kind of want to hear about those games because especially the Lamar Jackson one when he goes for six touchdowns and he mentioned, like, this kid, he just comes out of nowhere, 18 years old never really been on film before and just comes out. I want to hear about that. <laughs> so I was actually, I was just an intern at Kentucky when I saw that game. Uh, the Carson Wentz game was my last year, my last, actually my last game playing ever. Okay. Um, but the Lamar Jackson thing was, uh, so obviously rivalry weekend every year in college football, everybody squares off. So it was Kentucky versus Louisville. We were five and six at the time. So we needed to win to go to a bowl game that year. And we'd had a pretty good start. I think we beat, we beat Missouri that year when they were ranked like 23rd or something. So it was a big deal because the program was like in the formative stages of, of getting good to where they finished that senior class that finished 10 and three, a couple years ago, were all freshmen when I was there. So that was like the, the beginning stages of, of a really good era at Kentucky football. Um, but so we went up 21, nothing against Louisville 
in this game. And the, the third touchdown was our senior linebacker. He housed a pick six, 80 yards. And he chucked the ball into the second story stands after he scored, obviously a penalty. So we kick off from the, the 15 yard line at that point. And so they get the ball in like the 50 and we see them trot this freshman out there. because Kyle Bowen was quarterback at the time. They pulled him because he wasn't getting it done. Lamar goes out there. And I mean, if he stands sideways, if he didn't have a helmet on you, like you wouldn't be able to see him. He would, he would that thin. Um, but all of a sudden, like, and you could, you could tell, and obviously I had enough football sense to know, like, he literally had like one read of who he was going to throw to. And they said, if it's not there, pull down and go. And that is all he did to us for the rest of the game. And again, 42 straight points. So we were up 21, nothing. We lost the game 42, 21. And it was just, we did not have an answer for the kind of speed that he had. And it's the same stuff you were seeing him do in the NFL now, but it just, it, it wasn't obviously nearly the talent level that you see at the NFL. So the, he made our guys look even sillier. Um, and yeah, little did I know that that would be the, uh, the first game of an absolute phenomenal athlete and somebody that continues to dominate the game today. So in retrospect, very, very cool. But in the moment of not getting to go to a bowl game, as an intern, <laughs> not very cool. <laughs> yeah. So one thing that, um, on the, when I was in high school and even college, one thing I struggled with was nutrition, trying to figure out how much rest my body need in between either workouts or even uh, just being on the field. Um, like you define or tell us like how much nutrition plays a part of of being an athlete in general. How far is your car going to get if you just put muddy water in the tank? I may be able to make it out the block. <laughs> <laughs> and then that thing's going to be barking at you. Asking what the hell you just put in it? Yeah, so I, th I think that that's that's some of the lowest hanging fruit for college athletes is mm -hmm. teaching them how to um, fuel their bodies. And it, it's interesting because the girl I've been seeing, we've had some good conversation because she's in anthropology and um, looks more at like the the economic and the the cultural implications of accessibility for food. And so, like, she's given me some really really good food for thought that you know, obviously by area, by, you know, where a kid grows up, what have you, some just don't know. And some just don't have the access to the same resources that, you know, I, as somebody from the West suburbs of Chicago, mm -hmm. um, that I had to just get a basic understanding of what good nutrition is. Like some people mm -hmm. are, are raised in a situation where they don't eat breakfast. And so it's never been something that mm -hmm. they've done. And you get these kids through the doors in college and they've got a training table that has top of the line everything, but this kid's grown up for years and years and years, and it's gotten him to this point that he wasn't used to eating breakfast, so he doesn't feel he needs to eat breakfast. Then he gets into the game, and he wonders why in quarter two he's cramping up, and you're, you're, you're trying to create these associations for him, but even then, it's still an uphill battle because you're trying to, you're trying to rewire years and years of um, habits and things that they have gotten away with not doing because they were just that much better than their peers at the sport. So they didn't need to try as hard one and two, they didn't require as much fuel. Um, so, but it's, it's absolutely paramount for maximizing performance, improving body composition, um, improving what you get out of your sleep, which is so formative for learning cognition and, and recovery. Um, it, it's a massive part of, of 
who you are as an athlete. And like one of the cool things that's coming out in, in literature is that there's actually like a second brain in your digestive system. That's very largely responsible for um, emotional elements of who we are as human beings. And so if, if that area is just sat in, in toxic filth of, of bad nutrition, or it's not getting the nutrients that it needs, there's beyond the impacts on our actual brain up here, um, you know, you're having detrimental effects on other aspects of your body beyond just your performance that ultimately your, your perception, your psychology is your reality and your physiology. And so if you're not able to give your body the things it needs to be in a good place mentally, spiritually, emotionally, um, and physically, like, your performance is going to be greatly handicapped. And, you know, you, you see some of like the success stories when you, when you do get through to kids about just making small lifestyle changes to improve their nutrition. And all of a sudden they see their, their body change drastically. They see um, they perform better. They play better. They feel better. They sleep better. Uh, it's really, really powerful for the kid to recognize, you know, yeah, this thing that I used to do, it, it worked to a point. But when I made this change and I started giving my body the things that it needs to, to be healthy, um, it went to another level. And it just, it, it takes some of those examples and, you know, some of those older guys that have kind of gone through that process and matured to a point to where they're receptive to input like that. Um, it, it can take those guys being mentors to those younger guys that are maybe pretty headstrong and set in what they've always been doing to break through and say, look, I'm where you want to be in four years. I'm telling you, this is what you should be looking to do and the changes you should be looking to make. And obviously it doesn't always go uh, according to plan. And you, you have kids that you, you fight all four years. I mean, there's still kids that, you know, in the locker room, I'm chasing down to get them to eat like a, a gummy fruit snack at halftime just to get something in them uh, during college football games. But it's, you know, can you make that small, small, like one step forward change that uh, drives them towards better outcomes? And so it's, it's definitely one of the, the lowest hanging fruits, but it's so... Um, beneficial for athletes that if they can make those changes or if they can build those lifestyle habits early, it, it reaps dividends in the long run. And then even as you transition, I believe a lot of, I think one of the things that I hold very importantly as a coach is to not just spoon feed the athletes, training programs, nutrition, what have you, but to equip them with knowledge for life that when they're done with me and they no longer have utility to me as an athlete that the things that I taught them can have utility to them as human beings in the world beyond college athletics. So knowing how to exercise their bodies the right way, understanding nutritional principles that they can apply so that when they're not burning through all the calories they normally burn through, they can remember the things that they were taught in college about how to fuel their bodies um, how to adjust their nutritional intake based on the time of year, things that really resonate with them and allow them to live a healthier life and a better life beyond their time with me. Like I really strongly believe in equipping kids with that knowledge and empowering them with that so that it's not just four years and I've chewed you up and spit you out and I no longer have, you know, any use for you. I would much rather they can leave with knowledge for life of how to take care of themselves so they can come back and still say, you know, I, I, I took myself through a lifting workout, like especially working with female athletes. Like I, I take a lot of pride in, in female athletes 
taking pride in lifting because I think it's one of the best things they can do for their body, but there's so many misconceptions about, you know, they're going to get bulky, um, jacked, whatever. And so when girls come back to me and they, they tell me, you know, they, they still like look using the summer training packets I gave them, or they, you know, they appreciate how their bodies looked when they lifted. And it's something that they, they continue to do because of that. To me, that that's, it, that's the most, um, I think that's the best thing I get out of the job is when athletes are, are coming back after you've you're completed with your work with them and they're, they're still finding value in things you taught them. And they're still wanting to associate with you because of how you made them feel uh, as a human being when you worked with them. Yeah. One of the things that I'm definitely going to ask you for is a workout plan because your boy, <laughs> you too. Is a little chunky. <laughs> your boy is a little chunky right now. So, so I've got the, this is like the, the retiree athlete special that I keep on hand. It's the yeah. all show, no go program. So you look great, but if the zombie apocalypse hits, you're dead. Um, <laughs> but, you, but Hey, you're going to look great as a zombie. Rest assured. <laughs> hey, that's, that's all I need to know. <laughs> I got, I got that on deck so we can, we can catch up about that after. All right. Cool. Yeah. Do you, do you have a special for former athlete who's had kids and bad knees and is still fat like <laughs> do, you have, do you have a special for that i'm not it's for a friend wink wink but um yeah because yeah i've I, I gotta do something it's the it's the all show and i'll go program at your pace <laughs> yeah so we'll have to talk we offline absolutely yeah there's there's easy ways to make modifications around all that stuff like i think that's what a lot of people get caught up that exercise has to look a certain way. And I think the reality of it is that it does not, uh, the best exercise programs are the ones that you do the most consistently. Mm. So it may not be a, it may not be a back squat. It may be a front squat. It could be a trap bar deadlift. It could be a split squat. It could be a leg press. It's all like when you look at the joint actions, it's your knees flexing, your hips flexing and extending. So it doesn't need to fit a, you don't need to jam a square peg into a round hole for it to be exercised. Like for some people, it may not even be lifting weights. Like my girl is hyped about doing kickboxing and MMA. Like that's what does it for her. That's physical activity. It, it isn't structured, regimented, whatever, but she's physically active. She enjoys going for runs. I don't enjoy going for runs. I don't run. <laughs> yes. So for me, uh, exercise looks like lifting weights, doing sprints, doing jumps, um, and doing like uh, high intensity conditioning or riding a bike. Mm. But I think I think that's the biggest thing is like everybody's so worried that if they're not going to the gym and lifting the weights and doing the hit and doing the runs mm. and the walks on the treadmill that they're not exercising. But it's like no, like find something that you, you're gonna go and do and not like have to drag yourself to doing every time. It could be just going out for hikes it could be riding a bike around town like if you just find something that's consistent it could be dancing it, whatever that is and whatever that looks like um uh, as long as you get up and you do it consistently to me that's where people would be far better served but i think a lot of people have it as if it doesn't look like that it's not exercise so i'm not even going to attempt mm. right right yeah I, I feel like this i wish we could have had this conversation pre-covid because especially with how COVID was set up and every you know, gym shut down and you can't 
you might not have access to equipment. I think this is a really important for this type of conversation to be had because like I know for me, like when Jim shut down, I was like, well, <laughs> what am I gonna do? Sit down, bust out a whole bunch of prison push-ups? Like that's just not me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. so where where's but then again, if you have someone that's telling you, as long as you're doing something active, something that you enjoy, that you can do in your house, hey, run with it, you know? Yeah. And I, I think, you know, and even with the COVID stuff and with like my athletes and trying to work with them, like it, it was just reassuring them constantly too. Like, look, every athlete in the country is dealing with this. So as much as it may, you know, worry you or be unsettling that you can't do this, you know, you, you're not at any less of a disadvantage or any more of a disadvantage than any other athlete in the country. So, you know, control what, what you can and, and do what you can and make the best with what you can. Um, but this is a weird thing for lack of a, a better word. Like this is unprecedented as far as you know, everything being shut down and not being able to even go to parks. So, um, you know, if you can either sit there and, and stress on like what you can't do, or you can focus on what you can do. And like a lot of that funnels from just basic principles around how you talk to kids who are hurt. Like so much of the time they get fixated on, well, my hamstring's torn. I can't do anything. It's like, well, you have another leg and you have an upper body <laughs> that can all do things. So let's focus on the things you can do with that and put you in a better mindset towards things you can do rather than orienting yourself towards the negative and the things that you can't do. And so I think that was a lot of the, the talk with COVID was look, yeah, this isn't conventional at all, but guess what? We're all making it up as we go and we're, we're gonna figure it out. And the best thing you can do for yourself is whatever's going to make you feel good. So if you need to be going out for extra walks and riding your bike, whatever it may be, I don't care how you get that done. I care that you are mentally healthy and happy and okay with where you're at in light of everything going on. So yeah, it's definitely, it was a very, it was a very difficult situation to navigate and to try and help these 18 to 22 year olds who are already in the most volatile time period of their life. Um, and they're trying to deal with the uncertainty of a pandemic and whether or not they're gonna have their sport if they're a senior, if they're even gonna get to play their senior season, um, the stress of trying to do online school and you know, there's so, then that doesn't even begin to get into the potential issues they could be having at home. If a family member's sick or a family member got laid off and they've got to go to work now to help support their family, uh -huh. um, you know, extrapolate to any number of situations that we've all heard about throughout the last year and a half of this pandemic. And there's just, there's so many other stressors that these kids have never had to deal with in their life. And, you know, to make it more stressful by trying to put pressure on them with workouts, it's like, does it really matter? It's, it's a fucking game. Like, apologies for the language, but um, like, we're talking about it's a game good. where, you know, these kids are dealing with something that none of us and anybody alive today has dealt with before. So, like, let's just make sure that the kids are okay and we give them things to, to keep them active, but we don't, like, uh, I, I, when kids would, like, apologize to me, like, if they didn't get something done, it was like, don't apologize. Like, I'm good. You don't, you know, you don't owe it to me. You owe it to yourself to take care of you and to make sure that you are in the best position possible to succeed. So, 
if you needed a day off, I trust that you took a day off because it was in your best interest. Like I, I think a lot of people act in the interest of self-preservation very naturally. So if a day off was what appealed to you more, you probably got more out of that day off than you would have if you had trained. And obviously there's a line to be towed between just being lazy and needing the day off. But there, there's kids that it, they know when they can't go. And they're usually pretty driven to, to get their stuff done to make sure they stay in shape. So when they, they need that day off and they take it and it's not supposed to be a day off, don't apologize to me. <laughs> no, I definitely, I definitely understand that. What's, um, what are some of the biggest challenges in the industry right now? I think definitely the, see, it's funny. Cause like you can talk about challenges, but then the rabbit hole start going deeper on where the problems stem from. Oh yeah. And I, I think it could, the best way to summarize it would be that it, it's my lens that anybody in collegiate sport would not have a job without the student athletes. Like they are fundamentally, they are why I am able to coach. They are why sport coaches are able to coach. They're why athletic trainers have their jobs. They're why college athletic department administrators exist in the first place. So without going too, too deep in any one direction, I think the most fundamental issue in the field of collegiate athletics is that decisions are made that are not made with the student athlete first in mind. And I think obviously there are going to be, so like we'll go 20,000 foot view. Like let's say there's not um, enough money at a school for whatever reason. Um, obviously pandemic hit a lot of schools hard. So while it's got a little bit tighter, that is absolutely fine if that money is not available and to take care of the student athletes. But if you're going to make a decision that has negative ramifications for the student athletes, the person who ultimately signs off on that issue should be the one to deliver that news and to explain why and to answer the questions and deal with the frustrations of the student athletes. Because I've seen it before where the person who made the decision uh, had a messenger pigeon effectively deliver the message and the anger and the frustration was directed at the, the messenger and not the person who ultimately made the decision. And again, if the decision has to be made, that is an adult doing their job. We trust that they made the best decision, but put the skin in the game and go own the decision to the people that it's affecting the most. And I think the further you get from the people who have a hand on the student athletes in terms of decision-making, the worse and the, the less student athlete oriented the decision-making becomes. And so I, I think college athletics would be very well served. And this goes all the way up to the NCAA level. I think the NCAA is horribly undershooting what they purport their mission to be. Um, I, I've always been really drawn to a quote from a book called Thinking in Systems by Don Ellen Meadows, um, where she says, behaviors are deduced from uh, actions and behaviors, not purposes or stated goals. So if your goal is the health and wellness and performance and the student athlete uh, experience as an amateur, then the decisions that you make should be to that, um, to that goal. But when you don't have things like an accreditation process in place for sport coaches to demonstrate an understanding of physiology, of stress, of motor learning, of, um, you know, tactical principles uh, of sport planning, 
when you don't have strict um, accreditation policies in place for strength coaches, and you, you have this situation where if you're really about the health and the wellness and performance of the student athletes, put these things in place to protect the kids. It's in the kids' best interest and it's, um, you know, in the governing body's best interest to have uh, stops in place to where somebody is not going to understand the ramifications of doing something like mental toughness conditioning or something like that. And they're just going to run kids mercilessly into the ground. That mm. it, 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 I think if the common person understood the, the, scope of negligence that there is when it comes to the development of student athletes, people would be absolutely shocked. And, um, you know, so I think that's all just to say that there needs to be more decision-making done through the lens of what is best for the student athletes first and foremost, and that it goes to every level of sport all the way to the NCAA all the way down to athletic departments and all the way down to sport coaches, because even at that level, you will still see decision-making that is done in the uh, best interest of the coach, not in the best interest of the student athletes. And like timely, because I had a, a tweet yesterday that was um, about uh, punishment with uh, student athletes. And in my opinion, the best way to punish is to remove playing time. Like if there's Absolutely. one thing, if there's one thing a student athlete should care about, it's playing time. That's why they're there. Um, because I, I heard it, I've heard it suggested previously, like what if we removed practice time? There are kids that don't care about practice. What if it's a physical punishment workout? One, you can't do that anymore. Um, Sorry, um, you can't do that anymore per NCAA legislation. Um, but two, like the kid doesn't care about that. Like you can lie to yourself all you want. They, they don't care about doing punishment workouts or else I would not have done um, probably three or four punishment workouts at six in the morning for the same guy over the course of my college career. If it worked, it would have been one time and done. Um, but so like the, kind of like the logic I went through of like sorting that out is to say, you know, the kids should care about playing time. So take that away. If that doesn't send a message, because now they got to answer to scouts about why they missed the game and they weren't hurt. Um, if they don't care about it from that light, then you've got a more fundamental issue, um, of what kind of kids are you recruiting? Do you understand how to identify the psyche of athletes to know that they're actually about playing? their sport and they would care about something like that. Um, and so if you, if you have kids like that in the, in the building, um, you really need to revamp how you're going about your recruiting efforts. So I just, I think it's, it's stuff like that where, you know, I've suggested removing playing time as a punishment strategy and sport coaches eyes kind of avert because it's like, they want to punish the kid, but they don't want to do it in a way that means they're truly about upholding the culture that they want for their program. So it's like you get you can say culture, 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 all you want in your press conferences and your team meetings. But if you're really about your culture, you'll put a kid's playing time on it for the short term uh, detriment that it is to your program. But the long term benefit that it has in showing that you stand for your culture to the point that you will take away a kid's opportunity to benefit the team to send the message that 
what he did or she did is unacceptable. Yeah. Go ahead, B. Okay. Well, I, that's kind of um, good that you said that. I was going to ask like uh, a final question for you because I know you said a lot about that. I was kind of thinking like, what kind of like grind your gears or kind of like a pet peeve within um, of what you said with like the punishment stuff and like the way uh, some coaches coach the athletes with the workouts they do. What is kind of one major thing that kind of um, like a pet peeve, I guess in a sense, a pet peeve for you? I think there's, and again, I, I think it's much more systemic because there's only so many hours in the week for sport coaches to get all done that they need to get done. And there's only certain coaches that can go out and recruit. And so th there's this duality of, they've got to both readily service the players that they work with that are there, but they've also got to try and recruit for the future so that they can continue to win and, and continue to succeed or try and build for success. And so I think what unfortunately happens is that the actual understanding of what the demands of a given sport or a given position group is on the field. I think that part largely gets neglected because of the proliferation of the internet and the ability to just kind of see a drill and say, Hey, I'm going to use that today and not understand one, what is the drill actually trying to teach them Two, does it actually transfer to the sport? And three, how can I, adjust this drill in difficulty or maybe make it easier for athletes who don't understand or is there another way i can teach the same skill to an athlete who's not getting it um, and utilize those progressions regressions and lateralizations of a drill so that it's better targeted towards where an athlete is at as an individual so i just think a lot of what ends up transpiring in sport practices is this is how i did it when i played this is how it's always been done. So I'm going to do it this way. And all I'm going to do is just arbitrarily find drills on YouTube and I'll reach into my bag on a given day and I'll pull some drills out and we'll do them for that day. Versus actually looking at, you know, kind of in line with that like reverse engineering sport concept I talked about. If the goal is 11 on 11 football, how can I get an athlete to understand his role on a certain route in the context of 11 on 11 football. And it starts by laying the basic foundations of what is his stance and start. So to me, the, the progression is very simply over the course of a year, your stance and your start all the way to 11 on 11 football. And so that's, you know, that's January to August is like, and then you gradually layer in the elements that comprise that. So maybe early in January, it's just stance and start. Late January, it's stance, start releases and like breaking out of your routes at different vectors. Then you're getting into uh, routes on air. And this is again, just very broad, like outlining like how you could kind of layer these things into increasing amounts of uh, complexity and specificity and intensity for the athletes and more contextual to what they're going to do in sport. So now you've gotten them to routes on air, then you're maybe going to one-on-ones then you're maybe going to two-on-two. -two, so like half skelly type deal where there's two route combinations then you're maybe going to, excuse me, seven on seven. So now it's just the passing concept. And now you're integrating it all with 11 on 11. And so I, I think too much, it, it, you build these technical and tactical 
foundations with a very narrow base that ultimately limits the athlete's potential to successfully execute in the most pivotal uh, stage of competition. Because if all an athlete understands in, um, in a route concept is their individual route, and they don't understand how their route fits in with the three other routes that are moving, they may do something thinking that all they've got to do is worry about getting open, but because of the way that they um, improvise on the fly, they end up closing down what should be open because they don't understand that if they move this way, it's going to pull the defense in that direction, which is going to open up the concept for somebody else. So it's a, to me, it's about being able to very systematically and scalably take the most basic level of what a, an athlete does within their sport and gradually add layers that begin to make it look more and more like the sport itself. And to do that systematically and to do that on a somewhat individualized level for each athlete relative to their developmental capability, I think it is a very, again, low hanging fruit for uh, sport coaches to tap into. And there's, there's some, don't get me wrong, that do it pretty intuitively well. But I think the vast majority, a lot of it is just plug and go and that's it. And so I think that could be where, again, if you know, we agree that fundamentally sport coaches are, are educators or teachers, um, we don't just let our, our school teachers go in there without any sort of background in pedagogy or understanding how kids learn. Um, the sociological and the psychological dynamics of the population and demographic that they're working with. Those are all things that have to be, um, that a prospective teacher should be educated on and have an understanding of so that when they make decisions about what to say about what actions and behaviors to carry out with those kids, there's an informed reason as to why they're doing it. Um, so if we can appreciate that our school teachers, as we know them, are educators and learners, and we were willing to say the same thing about uh, sport coaches, that they are sport educators, sport teachers, there should be a, a mandate or requirement for certain uh, domains to be within their capacity um, and to be within their educational field as a coach. They should understand pedagogy. They should understand how to teach. They should understand how motor learning occurs in athletes. They should understand um, physiology and stress and how the body responds to those things and the, the global nature of stress. Um, they should understand group dynamics and, and culture and human cognition and how people think. Like that, there's a lot of a human, there's so much of a human element to what we do as sport coaches that you have to understand why people think the way they do and why they respond the way they do. And so if you have all these pieces that um, arm coaches with the ability to teach their kids better and to understand their kids better, you're going to create much more stable situations than what you currently see in college sport, which is, is typically that you see teams get fired every three, coaches get fired every three years and the coaching carousel spins up every single year with people getting fired because everybody's just covering their eyes and throwing darts and hoping something sticks. Um, you know, you've got very few people that have, you know, to a, a pretty convincing extent figured it out. And, you know, when I, I say that, it's like you look at like Nick, Nick Saban and what he's done in Alabama. He's got it figured out. <laughs> um, you know, it probably is not perfect, but he's got the right people in the building. He's been able to bring in people that recruit phenomenal athletes. 
And he's established a culture that clearly leads to winning. There's absolutely things that could probably be improved. But again, you look at the, the dominance that they, they've taken over college football with, and it's like, mm-hmm. it's, it's one thing if you do it one year, but as many years as they've done it, success leads clues. Like there's definitely something to be taken from that and to say, you know, maybe they, they've got it figured out um, versus everybody else who is just perpetually on the coaching carousel getting fired every few years. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yep. Yeah. I, the, what Alabama has built is legendary and uh, is history, you know? Yes. I, I don't think it will, I don't say we don't think we'll ever see it again because sports is about to repeat itself, but you know, we'll see what happens. But what's interesting is that, so they just got a new uh, performance staff there last year. And the guys they brought in are of a much more progressive mindset. And it's, I think people, uh, people have observed it. I don't know if there've been numbers out on it or not, but Alabama has been less hurt than they were previously, which obviously if you want to get better at a sport, you need to be available to practice it. If you're hurt, you're not available to practice. So you can't get better at your sport. So you've taken the cream of the crop. You've made them more available to practice so they can get better at the sport. And so these guys have really like, they, they've kind of caught on within the uh, strength and conditioning culture because they, they attempt to do it right. And um, they take a very objective approach to it. Kind of like what I've alluded to in segments in our talk. Um, but they're much more so about performance as it pertains to the sport and about the athletes being fast and explosive and not just grinding them down with weights and 300 yard shuttles. And so it's, you know, it'll be very, very interesting going forward to see, you know, cause obviously they had to deploy this during a pandemic. So it'll be very interesting to see what they're able to do when they get their hands on the kids consistently for a year. Yeah. And then obviously they're able to continue forward, um, and, you know, to see when the playing field's a little bit more level in years to come, how readily they can reproduce that success and, you know, what kind of bearing that has on their ability to sustain it. And then, you know, to also see if they can even widen that margin with the way that they're able to develop these guys and the, the more long-term plan they're able to put in place when there's not a pandemic precluding them from working with the kids. So something to keep an eye on from, from my realm as well is that they, they change over strength coaches um because i know one of the things i heard when i was at kentucky and there's enough articles about it out on the internet um was that you know one of the knocks on on kids coming out of there was that they tended to be a little bit more injury prone and i mean you can kind of look at all the guys that have come out there and how they go in the nfl and they they have tended to have injury issues Mm -hmm. um but that's something that has started to clean up with these guys that came in and so it's going to be very very interesting to see long term what the the ramifications are for these top-notch blue chip kids that, that come out of Bama and how just doing less and being a little bit more systematic and progressive in their development, uh, what sorts of implications that has for them and their careers at Alabama and beyond. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it too. Um, <laughs> roll down pod. <laughs> roll down pod. <laughs> uh, so, man, that – that concludes I, I, as much as I would love to keep talking about all of this because everything I, is 
Everything's been indefinite in tune. I know I'm definitely, I know my brother definitely want to talk to you offline. I know I'm gonna definitely want to talk to you offline. So, but uh, for the sake of this interview, for the sake for our, our listeners, we're gonna transition to our rapid fire segment. So that's the game within the game segment that we call it. So we pretty much just ask you like either or questions and we just get a response. Me and Brady have a, a running score things, how uh based off people's responses and based off what we think and what Brady thinks. But today, since we got my brother with me, it's it's going to be even more of an interesting game. <laughs> so my question for you is, are you ready to play? Let's get it. All right. All right. Question number one. You have a chance to have either on your team. Who are you picking? Terrell Owens or Randy Moss? Randy Moss. <laughs> Without hesitation, <laughs> Randy. <I> like that. <laughs> All right, I mean, Brady, game breaker. Brady, who are you picking? I'm probably going with Randy Moss as well. I'm a Patriots fan, and he's played for New England, so I'm kind of gonna go with that route. <laughs> Mark, man, that's a tough one. Um, see, it's how much, how many years I have to commit to Terrell Owens? Like, if it's just like a one year. <laughs> I got only got because he only has one good year in him, like as far as before he blows up your team. But uh, I'm gonna go. Uh, but I love Randy Moss since since he was possibly going to Notre Dame. So I'm gonna say Randy Moss. I'm a big Moss fan. There's a reason why you always people hear people say you got mossed. Yep. <laughs> you know, you, you never talk about people got to. It's always well, if you did, you got fired or let go. So <laughs> yeah, so it, it's always been, it's always been you got Moss. So I'm going Randy Moss. Randy yeah. Moss. All right, question number two. So going on, keep with the football. So uh, if you had the chance to uh, get drafted to play football, what team would you choose? Hometown Bears would be good for me. That would be cool. Let's go. Stop, Bears. <laughs> hey, you know, there's a there's still a chance, you know. I don't think you'll – I don't think you'll <clears throat> hit a cornerback in a, in a, in a uh, <laughs> in the playoff game. So, I, I think mean, you got a good chance there. I mean, don't get it twisted. I, I looked the part. I mean, I see the guns. <laughs> I see the guns. <laughs> it wasn't for a lack of ability. Trust me. I don't think they want to smoke. But this, I, I think I you think have I'll enough like... nerve to keep it in yourself. I think I'd have about one good route in me, but like what was funny is like I mentioned that when I was at Kentucky, I did a practice with them, and that was like I was probably ten months out of having played my last game, yeah. and it was a forty-five minute practice, and I woke up the next day, and it felt like I got a deep fishing massage from Freddy Krueger, like everything was just <laughs> tore up, <laughs> and it, and it, and it was like that for like three days, and I was like, man, if I'm ever getting back into football shit, I had like. I think I gave myself like another like six months to try while I was like trying to find GA positions. Like, man, if I ever really got to get back into football shape, that shit going to hurt. <laughs> <laughs> so if I, if I had to do that now when the extent of like my full speed running is like maybe four sprints a week, bad things would happen. Things would tear, <laughs> things would pop. It, it like, it boggles my mind to think like I could still be playing football at my age because the way I feel right now, no. <laughs> no oh man no I, I of course my obvious pick would be the bears too like oh yeah yeah 
what are we talking about? The beloved, the Bears. I know. Yeah. B, I already know where you're going, but tell the audience who you picking. Yeah, I'd go with the Patriots for mm. sure. Can respect it. Heard interesting things about Bill Belichick, but <laughs> the man knows how to do it. Off my conversation, huh? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so my next question is, this one's almost personal, but you ready for it? Let's do it. All right, so you got a chance to erase one loss, turn this loss into a victory, or just delete it like it never happened, right? Are you picking your Carson Wentz loss, or are you picking your Lamar Jackson's experience? Like. For sure. So, like, the, the two games that came to mind were the national championship, and I would definitely, in the interest of personal preference, would erase that one or would take that one to a win. The one I would actually probably get rid of was when we lost to Arizona State last fall, 70-7. to Oh, <laughs> I, I saw that when I Googled it. I didn't want to bring it up because – I'll bring it up. That hurt. <laughs> <laughs> I, I never wanted to leave a game at halftime as bad as I wanted to leave that one. <laughs> But yeah, That's I would, a rivalry I would too. yes. So that was about as bad as it could have gone. I mean, they, they housed the opening kickoff and then we turn around and we fumble the ball on three yard line, they score and it was 14, nothing in 53 seconds. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, I forgot. I forget what it was. I think I just like, I mentally just shut down after that. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I would definitely flip that uh, national championship loss to a win for sure. Like we were, that close to taking down, I mean, North, I don't know how much you know about FCS football, but North Dakota State's been a powerhouse the entire mm-hmm. decade. Um, so, like, to have been the ones that took them down would have been really, really cool. And we definitely had the, the, the dogs to do it, but just Carson Wentz was who he was. Was that the Cam Meredith team? Was yes, that was. Yeah. He's, he was in my class. Okay. Yep. That's my boy. That's awesome. Cam was a good dude, man. It just sucks that he seemed to get injured like he did. Yeah, it is too bad. He's, I think he's, he's looking to make a comeback right now, but he's, he's doing some stuff in music too. That, uh, and he collected his check, so he's gonna be good. I mean, he made it through three years, so he got the yeah. big check. He's, he's gonna get the pension. He'll be, he'll be set for life. Nice, good, good for Cam. Yes. Yeah, shout out to Cam. <laughs> yes, good dude. But but now see now I'm I'm more so curious about this that that loss now that you bring it up because mm-hmm. what I, other than the first like I don't know like as as fans I know being watching this we, when someone goes up twenty one nothing we like all right this game's over with yeah that's yeah. how it felt in the stadium we were playing at Commonwealth Stadium so like the entire vibe in there was we're about to blow the up the road rival out the water and make it to a bowl game. And I think that would have been, I think that either would have been the first or the second time in Mark Stoops tenure there that he would have made a bowl game at that point. So it was pretty big deal, kind of like a, a turning point. Um, and then, yeah, just like a balloon that's been inflated. You just felt the air coming out of the stadium every time that Lamar took off. So yeah, that, that had a similar feel to the Arizona State one, but the Arizona State one was still just like, at least from the jump, we know it was over. Like, we had this super high feeling of uh, the Kentucky-Louisville game and being up 21 nothing to just watching it. We got 21 by the end of the game. 
Lamar hopped on the sticks and did what he does and then dubbed us. <laughs> so the next question is, um, we're going to transition out of the football realm for a quick second. And I probably should ask this question, you know, knowing who you are, but I'm, I got to ask because I'm a chunky person. <laughs> are you, are, are you a chocolate chip fan, chocolate chip cookie or oatmeal raisin? Chocolate chip. I will house sweets. Hang on. While we're talking, I'll show y'all my culinary skills because I will absolutely throw down in the kitchen for some sweets. Um, but yeah, my, my mom gives me hell because I'm like this super healthy, quote unquote, strength coach. And you give me some donuts or some cheesecake or cookies, and it will not just be one or two of them. It will be the whole thing. <laughs> and uh so again, I, at this point, all I do is I work out to be able to eat what I want and to uh, enjoy life. And I enjoy life. <laughs> and the, the way I tell it to like, I tell it to my student athletes this way too. I'm like, look, life is too short to, to go to the grave eating sticks and leaves. Like there's too much good food out there to do that. So this is something I made back in the day. Oh, oh man. It is a uh, devil's food and cheesecake plan cocho with caramel sauce over the top so it's like a cheesecake and like chocolate cake all mixed into one and then with caramel over the top oh man <laughs> so i can get down and uh eat some good food but absolutely chocolate chip that oh, sounds man. so good i i got i gotta get myself to the point where i can eat what i want you know, <laughs> I do it now, but I don't work out. So that's what, that's what I'm saying. Like, I gotta, I gotta add the, I gotta add the working out part yeah. so I get what I'm on. But so then like, there's that side of it, but then the, so the girl I'm dating is vegan. And so I'm learning how to cook vegan for her. So it's like tonight I made this, which is like, it's basically like uh almost like a sloppy joe but it's like barbecue it's like jalapeno honey apple crisp uh tempeh okay. with uh sauteed onions jalapenos and honey crisp apples and smoked gouda cheese over the top okay so like there's the vegan like healthy meal that i can make and then there's the flan cocho that like yeah we're gonna get down we're gonna eat some good food so mm -hmm. you gotta work at both ends of the spectrum <laughs> nice. Nice. Okay. oh my god i need i need both of those right now i think I'm gonna... <laughs> the balance it's the balance <laughs> so next what we got for you um are you tv shows or movies which one do you prefer movies mm. what was the last movie you saw it was either uh tenant or dark knight rises i watched that again dark knight is a classic i love it and it was shot in chicago so like seeing like glimpses of chicago so cool were yes, you were, were you lost watching the tenant? Yeah, I've made plans to watch it again this weekend, but I enjoyed it overall. I thought cinematically it was well done, but definitely going to be a rewatch. Absolutely, fair enough. <laughs> B, were you a TV show? Yeah, yeah. Let Scott know if he was a TV show or a movies person. Oh, definitely a TV show, just because I like. Uh, the multiple seasons. I know we talked on past episodes about this question, and I would rather have a TV show than a movie. Mark, what's your what's your preference? Wow, like I am, a, I'm a, I can do both. Honestly, I want to say movies because 
TV shows you don't get I, the, the the one thing that keeps showing in my mind was when Endgame came out and this the vibe when you're watching it with a whole bunch of people and you just see the the crowd go crazy you don't get that with TV shows yeah so you get that with movies so I'll, I'm gonna have to say movies I I get that as far as the movies I love movies but I you can sign me up for a good TV show that I'm there. You know, yeah, it's not, it may not be the same theory, theory, you know, theoretic or theory, you know, theater experience. Yeah. However, to be able to tweet and talk about it over social media and just talk about it with people, look forward to the next episode. That's what, that's what. I, I think well. if Game of Thrones had closed down better, I, my answer would be biased. But like, because Game of Thrones felt like a full on movie the entire time. Yes. And then the last season just felt like, wrap it up then. And they fucking shut it down so quick when they could they had so many threads they could have like taken with it to make it really really good. But yeah, I think if Game of Thrones had ended really well, I, I would have probably be saying TV shows right now because of that show alone. But yeah, yeah, the, still not over. the the last season of Game of Thrones is one of those things I wish I can like Daniel snap. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Then you'll get Ari with the dropping and the not sorting. The, 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 the. You can re, you can was, redo all that. You can keep some parts, but just that was, like the, that was like the, the last the battle. Part of it. The battles were unreal. Yes. Like the battle sequences in season eight unreal, but it was like the pace that they took it at and the storylines they had built up throughout all the seasons prior. There were so many ways it could have gone. Like. Aria with the man of many faces or whatever it was. Like, how did that not come around again at some point in that last season and get utilized in some way? Um, I'm just trying to think of all the different like small storylines that got developed, but it was all stuff that like just got completely left out and neglected when it was set up to be relevant or seemingly relevant throughout the show. And then Bran on the freaking throne. Oh my goodness. This, yeah. I uh, see. I wish I knew what you guys were talking about. I've never seen the show, so I kind of lost. <laughs> if, you would, if you would like to, if you would like to hit a immense peak and then be just dropped off the face of a cliff, Game of Thrones. <laughs> Might have checked that out soon, though. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think that kind of concludes um, our interview today. So for the people watching this later and listening, uh, Scott, where can they find you, follow you, and follow along with um, everyday life that you're living? Uh, yeah, all my social media is scottkuhn88. So Scott is S-C-O-T-T. Kuhn is K-U-E-H-N. And then 88 was my number in college. Um, I'm very active on, in, I'm most in, active on Instagram and Twitter. Um, I also have a Facebook training page that if you search my name, it should pop up as well. Um, but yeah, I, I do a ton on those two platforms that, um, I, I post from a little bit everywhere. Like I, I don't think I should be separate or distinct as a coach. So you'll see me as a human being, you'll see coaching stuff. You'll see, um, you know, just banter memes, what have you, like I, I'm all over the place with it. So, uh, it's a good time to follow from what I've been told. <laughs> All right. Well, we thank you for joining us today. Um, for those listening and viewing, you can follow us at Capturing Game. You can follow us on Instagram at Capturing um, underscore the underscore game underscore pod. Or you can find us on uh, Twitter at CTG underscore podcast. And you can search us up on YouTube and Facebook under Capturing the Game Pod.
Um, again, Scott, I'd like to thank you um, for coming on, um, joining us and giving us all this um, wonderful insight. Thank you guys for having me. It's been a pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Thank you.